A friend recently visited a missionary who's serving in a country that is 99% Muslim. Knowing the challenges of serving God and striving to present the gospel in such a very difficult environment, uh, he asked the missionary, have, have you been able to lead anyone to Christ in the, the few years that you've been here so far? And the man was able to report, uh, yes, uh, I, I, have, uh, I have led two people to the Lord, and I also meet regularly with two others that became believers before I arrived. Well, the, man, the friend asked, uh, well, four people plus your own family, is that enough to start a church? And he said, yes, it's enough. And I tried, but it turns out that the four of them don't get along well and don't want to be in the same church. The, the man asked, well, are these like significant doctrinal issues? He said, no, it's basically just personality problems and personal preferences. It's, it's quite petty, actually. Now, it's a good thing we don't have that problem here, right? I mean, you could be thinking right now, well, no, I, I, I joined this church, and, and there are people here I don't even like. So I guess we're doing okay, right? Well, being in the same building with other people might not be the right standard of assessment. The real question is, do you have fellowship even with people that might be quite different from you? It's really a question of fellowship of connection. Well, we can satisfy ourselves that I have people that I spend time with, and uh, yes, those people do tend to be the ones that I like the most. Those are the ones that I choose to invite over, and then they're the, I'm, you know, they, they invite us over as well. And you might think that that's actually okay with the Lord. The status quo is good enough. But the reality is, whatever reason you might have, some people have some mannerisms that irritate you. They may hold some opinions that are contrary to yours. Who wants to be around people who are wrong? Hmm? Well, since the beginning of Romans 14, Paul has been arguing from a variety of angles that the status quo is not okay. Uh, in fact, he says in today's passage, it's contrary to the gospel itself. 
Romans 15, 7 through 13, our, our passage that we're focusing on today. This is not only the culmination of everything that Paul has said from the beginning of chapter 14. But it is also widely accepted that this passage is the summary of everything Paul has said in the book of Romans so far. He goes back and hits some of the key themes that have been showing up throughout our study. Uh, This is really the end of what we would call the body of his letter. This brings to a conclusion what he he was burdened to write. Now he's got a little more to say. We've got another chapter and a half. And they're just as much inspired. They're just as much uh, a part of the overall message of this book. But it's more like the postlude. And so we'll be giving our full attention to those as well. But this passage today is, is really a key to the entire letter. Here's what Paul wants us to get today. Because the gospel brings people together. Even people that aren't very much alike. Even people that might not like each other very much. The gospel brings those kinds of people together and places on each one of them an important responsibility. That responsibility is to broaden your relationships. Not be satisfied with the circle that you've established so far. And not to let expansion of that circle to be haphazard. Ah, If it happens, it happens. No, there's a responsibility here. There's a command that shows up in this passage. A command that God expects all of us to take seriously. This passage opens, as I explained last week, actually with verse 7. If you've got an ESV uh, translation of the Bible... It looks like verse 7 ends the previous paragraph, but if you have virtually any other translation, and I've checked a number of them, uh, everything else I've checked puts it with the next paragraph, with our paragraph. So that's how I've decided to use uh, verse 7. It's, it's transitional, yes. The word therefore at the very beginning tells us that. It's based on what has gone before, but not just the one paragraph before this, the entire book before this. Therefore, because of everything that we have learned from the book of Romans, here's the response that God expects. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, I, uh, I reserve the right, though I have, uh, I have given in to the pressure years ago to uh, turn in my outline on Friday morning. 
so that you can have a printed copy or an electronic copy. Those are available as well. But I reserve the right to make changes on Saturday or even Sunday. Now, uh, one thing, and this was minor, but I, yeah, still it's significant. Uh, I think actually I want to say the first point this way. The gospel connects people in church. To say in the church, as I had it on Friday, sounds like the universal church. But he's talking about a local church. He's talking about right here. What he expects of us. Another change, though, a little more uh, important than the structure of the outline, there are really three things Paul has to say in verse 7, and I've decided it's best to separate all three of them into points A, B, and C. So I'll say those for you as we get to them, and uh, you can decide whether the uh, Friday version or the Sunday morning version, which one you think is more inspired or not, okay? Uh, but that's up to you. But I'd like to uh, suggest that the gospel connects people in a local church. It is his plan that we see each other as part of the family. A phrase I love to use, the church family. It is just not appropriate that there are members of your family that you're not connecting with. That's the part that needs to change. So the first part is actually the command governing this entire passage. The command is simply that we are to welcome one another. Welcome one another. You may think, well, that's easy. I mean, there was somebody that was about to join, and they were being presented to the church family as a candidate for membership, and when the call came to issue the hearty amen, I voiced my agreement as well. Okay, they are welcome. Don't expect me to talk to them, but they're welcome to be here. Okay, that's not what Paul has in mind. The word welcome here means to receive, to personally receive. In fact, Paul has been defining what he means by welcome. He used the same word at the beginning of chapter 14. And in between, he's been defining what he means in various verses along the way. I want to point your attention to just uh, one, uh, one section of three verses. It's the very beginning of chapter 15. Here's what Paul means by welcome one another. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We saw a few weeks ago when we looked at that verse, he doesn't mean put up with them. Tolerate them, it means help carry them. There are some areas where they aren't measuring up. You help them out. And he calls that an obligation. An obligation based on what? Based on nothing less than the gospel itself. Let's continue. 
We have an obligation to, to bear with, to help carry the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Isn't pleasing ourselves exactly what we do when we limit our circle to those we like the best? Of course it is. Let each of us please his neighbor. Oh, he just reversed things, didn't he? Please his neighbor, but it gets worse. For his good. I really want the benefit that I can provide for that individual or for that group of people. Please his neighbor for his good to build him up to strengthen him in his walk with God. There's part of that obligation. And verse 3 tells us that means even if it's really hard for you to do, because that's the example Christ set. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It was hard for Christ to bear the reproaches of sinners, but he did it for God. He did it for God's glory. And so with that as our background, that's what it means to welcome one another, then receive others in obedience to God's word. This is a command that excludes no people. It's a command directly to you. Broaden your relationships. Broaden your relationships beyond the ones that have the very same interests that you do. Even the ones that face the same challenges, the, some, the ones that are the same age group, broaden your relationships. That is the command. That's what you must do. But the next part, and here's where I began to separate these more, receive others in obedience to God's word. The second part of verse 7, receive others in response to God's grace. Paul says, receive one another as Christ welcomed you. In that manner. Well, what manner did Christ welcome you? And that is when you turned to him and said, I don't deserve salvation, but I come to you and pray that you would forgive my sin. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. What was the manner of Christ's reception to you? He'd look you up and down and say, I don't know. You're actually not so hot. You've got some issues. You've got some baggage. You've got some mannerisms I don't like. You're holding some opinions I think are wrong. Any of those characterize Christ's welcome to you? Although those were all true. Now, what was Christ's welcome like? It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you've been. I accept you. 
I accept you into personal relationship. There's how Christ did it for you. He expects nothing less from you. Adopt Christ's example. And it doesn't matter the condition of other people. That's one of the reasons he wants you to have relationship. He wants you to make them better. That's what he does. It's what he's been doing for you ever since you trusted Christ as Savior. And then finally in verse 7, receive others for the sake of God's praise. God's honor is at stake here. And he just now, with these words, as he closes verse 7, for the glory of God, he just connected that command to be done in that manner with the very highest purpose of life, the very highest purpose of your life. It's the glory of God. That's your purpose in all that you do, and that includes broadening your relationships. You see, only doing the right thing, receive one another. In the right way, as Christ received you, for the right reason, for the glory of God, only that combination can actually achieve the purpose. Every part of verse 7 is important. How do you do that then? How do you move from a smallish circle to broadening that? Well, it's not going to happen by accident. This requires some decision. This requires some effort. I heard recently about some who have set the goal of inviting somebody that they don't know very well to their home for dinner every week. Well, that's kind of a high ambition. There are some that are doing that. I don't know that it's very many. I don't know what's going on in every home on Sunday afternoon. I suspect there's room for more to join. That's not the only way you can do it, but what a great start. Maybe look through the church directory this week. Let's see, I don't know them. Or to really challenge yourself, oh, I know that person too well. (laughs) Okay. Pick that one. Pick the hard one. God commands it. Widen and deepen your relationships. Now, you can't know everybody in our church, can you? Well, you can't know everybody really well. You can't spend time with everybody in a limited period of time, oh, I would acknowledge all that is true. Which was why I'm saying it this way, just broaden your relationships. 
And there is no stopping point there. If we decide to go through the book of Romans again next year, which I'm not planning on doing, and we came across this verse again, I would still say it the same way. Keep broadening your relationships. This is an ongoing responsibility. We made an announcement about a week or two ago that on the, uh, for uh, what we have done in the past on Labor Day weekend, on that Sunday, we have had home fellowships. Just uh, sign up and, uh, we'll, and we'll, we'll uh, assign you to a home, to a host that has volunteered to be a host. And in the past, we've done that by, on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. But the announcement this last time was, uh, we're not going to limit it to that Sunday because we're actually going to have building believers together on that first Sunday of September. But the announcement was, we're still going to have the sign-up, same opportunity, although it's any time during the month that works out best for the group that forms. And now you heard that announcement. You read that announcement in the email you got on Monday. And what was your response? I'm not doing that. Could that be it? I think I did that last year. I don't remember that working out so well. I wasn't so pleased. Did you decide, hey, it sounds like a free, uh, free time for me. I think I can find something better to do than spend time with people I might not know very well or might not like very well. I mean, that's kind of risky, isn't it? Let somebody else say who you're having dinner with? Nope. Not doing it. And then today we come across a verse that says, that's not okay with God. Right? That same announcement is going to be in the email tomorrow. I want you to read it again. And see if it's okay to say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Furthermore, once you click on that link and sign up, don't think there. I am obedient to Romans 15, 7. No, because really the whole point of this arranging dinner fellowships together is that you'll realize, hey, it's not so bad. I did meet some people. I got to know others that are better. I like to do this more often than once or twice a year. Well, have at it. Our whole point here is to set a pattern that then you will take the initiative Follow that pattern, and you can invite some other people you don't know very well or maybe don't like too much. So God's commanded. This might seem like quite a, quite a task, doesn't it? How can he expect us to relate to people that we don't like? Well, the next few verses answer that question. It's because the gospel connects people in Christ. His work provides that connection. See, here's where Paul begins diving back into the past sections of Romans. He has been uh, 
describing the details of the gospel itself. And now he summarizes that as the work of Christ. And that work provides connection. He says in verse 8, For I tell you, that's, that's an important introductory phrase that means I'm about to tell you something very important. Pay attention. I tell you this, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. What's he mean by Christ became a servant to the circumcised? Well, he's describing Christ's earthly ministry. Christ's earthly ministry was focused exclusively on the Jewish people. There were a few times he went outside their territory into Gentile territory, but it wasn't for the purpose of evangelism. I mean, one woman got saved, and it was even though he protested and said, no, that's not why God sent me. I'm here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she said, but can't I at least have some of the crumbs that fall from the children's table? And he says, okay, yes, you can. And in fact, that's saving grace right there. But his whole ministry was focused. He was a servant of the circumcised. Why did he do that? It's because God had made some promises that go all the way back to Abraham. Christ came to fulfill those promises. A, a son of Abraham, who would also be a son of David in Abraham's line, who would come to this earth as a redeemer. Christ came to fulfill all those promises. In fact, he's going to come again because there are some aspects of those promises that have yet to be fulfilled, like his millennial kingdom on this earth. To fulfill God's promises. In other words, to show that God is faithful. That's what it means to say, show God's truthfulness. When God says something, he's going to do it. He told the truth when he made that promise. But that same action of Christ became a servant to the circumcised has two distinct purposes. And both of them are essential. The first one, uh, he's already told us, it's to uh, confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. He became a servant to prove that God is uh, faithful to his word in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. But then second, the first part of verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The earthly ministry of Christ fulfills God's promise to the Jews, but it also did something else. It extends God's promises to the Gentiles. With his plan of combining both groups. You can't pick a, 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 a two groups of people that are wider apart 
that are less prone to being willing to come together than Jews and Gentiles. I mean, it's still an issue socially in our day today. But not in the church. Not in Christ. Not in the gospel. God has brought both groups together in Christ. And he highlights those two groups as the example. Look what God can do. If he can bring these two groups together... There is nobody in this church family that you can't have a good relationship with. Nobody would be this difficult. The work of Christ provides this connection then. And now Paul links together a series of Old Testament quotations. In fact, he selects some from each section of the Old Testament. That would be the writings, the Psalms in this case, the, uh, the, the law, book of Deuteronomy gets a, a hearing here, and the prophets, and he even names one of the prophets that he quotes here. All to tell us that God's word affirms that this has been God's plan from the start. This is not an add-on. God's plan was to send his son to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people and to extend those to the Gentiles. And here's how he said it a long time before Christ. The last part of verse 9, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. The I there would be a Jewish person. Praise you among the Gentiles, not apart from them, and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, together with them. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Gentiles will worship with Jews. Now, these verses were in the Jewish Bible all those centuries. Just imagine what a head-scratcher these were. How how is this ever going to be? And who would want this anyway, the Jews would be thinking. But here it is, the evidence that has been part of God's plan all along. But he has one more quotation to make, and he kind of separates this one from the others, both by naming where it comes from. Isaiah is the one who said this one. But also the content of this quotation is different from the others. They're all about worshiping together. This one says that the Gentiles will trust in the Lord. Verse 12, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that's the Jewish Messiah, will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles... In him will the Gentiles hope. The Gentiles will accept the Jewish Messiah. It's likely 
You're a Gentile. The vast majority of us are. Wish we had more Jewish people. I wish more would trust Christ as Savior and respond to the gospel. But if you're a Gentile and you know Christ as Savior, you've been included with the Jewish Messiah. That's where your hope is. The point is, it's in Christ that he brings different people together. Together in mutual relationship and mutual responsibility. It's been over two years now that we started the opportunity for home groups. Early on, those first couple of months, we heard from, uh, from several different people that were kind of hoping that a little bit of a, of a protest would uh, give the opportunity to get switched to a group that has more of their friends. Uh, we heard things like, I don't have anything in common with those people. But the response they heard was perfect. That means the only connection point is Christ. So you have the opportunity to prove that he is enough. Go learn to love those people. That's the message of our passage today as well. If Jews and Gentiles can come together, you can connect with anyone in this church. I challenge you, go ahead and pick the one you think is going to be the hardest and see if Christ isn't up to that challenge. That does seem like quite a lofty assignment, doesn't it? Is it too hard? Not if you believe in God. That's how Paul closes this passage in verse 13. He does so in a prayer. A prayer that Paul actually prayed as he was writing these words. But his his idea is not that it's enough for Paul to have prayed it a long time ago. Paul wrote this in the form of a prayer so that you would pray this prayer yourself. Having seen the assignment, the obligation God has placed on you from this passage, if you're thinking, I don't, I don't think I can do that. Well, let's look at this prayer. Look at the help that's available. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. We'll talk in a moment about believing what? Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Whoa, that seems like a long ways away. Joy and peace and doing this? Abounding in hope? I'm not even sure I know how to get started. What's going to make the difference? What can get you from where you're at at this moment 
to where Paul says you could be. It's in the very nature of asking God to help you. And here's a good suggested prayer. With the reality that God here offers his role as father and encourager. The father encourages believers. Because the gospel connects people in faith. You came to Christ by faith. And it's only by faith that we make progress in obedience to his word. In fact, that phrase I, I pointed out briefly already, uh, that the God of hope may give, fill you with joy and peace in believing, in the process of believing God. But that phrase has two aspects to it. Not just believing, all right, I believe God, but it also implies the second aspect, obeying. You believe what, is, what God says is true, and the flip side of that coin is that you decide to obey what God tells you to do. It's the commitment to, to obey based on your conviction of what is true that results in the God of hope, the God who is the very source of hope, of confidence, confidence in the face of hardship, of challenge, confidence that by his grace I can do this. That's the God of hope. And what can that God of hope do? He can fill you with joy and peace. He can turn the trepidation of, I don't think I want to do that. I don't like that. To, wow, was that ever fulfilling? What joy comes from both believing and obeying God? the God of joy and peace. The alternative is sorrow and turmoil. That's the result of saying, I don't believe God can do this. And no, I'm not going to obey. All right, this joy and peace, sorry, you don't get it. You can't have it. It's the God of hope who can fill you with joy and peace in believing. The in believing is your part. To believe what God says is true and to decide to obey. There's your challenge. His gifts can sustain you in hope, confident expectation, and the outcome of this path. But his gifts depend on your choice. The Holy Spirit has a role here as well. The very last part of verse 13 reflects on that, that the Spirit enables believers. 
so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what you can have. You can have the very power of the Holy Spirit himself based on your response to God's command. He can give the ability not just to tolerate other people, but to love them. No, no, come on. Now you're asking too much. No, no, this, that's not. The power of the Holy Spirit, he can do that. He can give that ability. He can accomplish what seems too difficult. And he can give you confidence for the future that you may abound in hope. That's the very Holy Spirit who dwells in your heart if you know Christ as Savior. That you may abound in hope. David Minnick, our missionary in Australia, sent a prayer letter this past week, just a few days ago. I thought one paragraph he included here is uh, really remarkable. Make me wonder if he wasn't reading Romans 15 very recently. See what you think. I'm going to read this paragraph for you. He said, the last few months have been busy with ministry to the believers the Lord has gathered together here. The regulars who attend the Bible study have been a blessing to us in so many ways. There's an excitement to hear God's word, and here it comes, a mutual concern for one another to help each other follow Christ. How about that? This works in Australia, too. It's been special, he says, to see the bond that is developing between the believers here. The gospel unites Jew and Gentile, he points out, and we are seeing these believers set aside personal differences, perceived needs, and idiosyncrasies to devote themselves to each other. You go check your own email if you got one from David Minnick. I'm not putting words in his mouth. That's how he said it. It does sound like Romans 15, doesn't it? That means Jesus Christ is the center of what is going on here. And that's something only the Spirit can produce. Amen. Give thanks to the Lord with us for his work as he prepares a bride for his son. We are so thankful to be part of that process of preparation. Of course, that group of believers is pretty early in their association with each other. And probably even there, some issues are going to start showing up but nothing that God's grace can't deal with. But yet this describes God's ideal for us. And yes, it does require the work of the Holy Spirit. Would you ask God to forgive your narrowness 
He'll do that. And then decide to broaden your relationships in obedience to his command. And join Paul in praying, verse 13. Oh Lord, may you as the God of hope fill me with joy and peace as I believe what you have said. And I'm committed to obey what you have commanded. The Lord is eager to answer that prayer and to show the power of the Holy Spirit. Let him do that in your life. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for your long-suffering with us, with our pettiness, our narrowness, Thank you, Father, for this passage of Scripture, which, though written long ago, has insights that you designed to challenge us today. Father, we need your help to respond in the way that would bring you the most honor. As we acknowledge that it is your glory that's at stake. Father, as you forgive, we pray that you would also empower, transform our expectations, our assessment of the relative value of other people. Father, by your grace, help us to broaden our relationships with each other. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.